This podcast is brought to you by the book, The Memoir Project, a thoroughly non-standardized text for writing in life, published by Grand Central Publishing. Recently updated and reissued in a new edition, it will teach you everything you need to know to write memoir. For more information, see the show notes or purchase wherever books are sold. Welcome to QWERTY. I'm Marion Roach-Smith. Each episode, I talk to writers from all genres to discover what makes a good read. And along the way, we discuss their writing process, discover their tips, and talk about what matters most to writers. So step away from the computer or typewriter for a bit and join us. Today, my guest is Samantha Clark, author of the brand new memoir, The Clearing, a memoir of art, family, and mental health, just out from Little Brown. Samantha is a writer and artist who lives on Orkney, an archipelago off the northeastern coast of Scotland. She's a visual artist and a writer, and I've dearly wanted to speak with her about how to create and maintain a writer's eye. Welcome, Samantha. It's a joy to have you on today. Hello, Marion. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm delighted to have you here. You've been awarded a PhD in creative writing from St. Andrews, a Scottish Book Trust New Writers Award, a Cove Park Scottish Emerging Writer Residency. So you're a well-published as well as well-decorated writer, but you originally trained in art at the Edinburgh College of Art, Belgrade Academy of Fine Arts, Slade School of Fine Art. Oh, yeah. And in 2010, you gained an MA in Values and Environment from the Philosophy Department at the University of Central Lancashire. So it seems you missed the memo to pick one thing and do it. So how did that happen, Samantha? (laughs) Yeah, I think I'm probably the definition of the eternal student. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I went to art school when I was young. I think I was 17 when I left school and headed off with my spotted handkerchief and went to art school. (laughs) And I've really just followed my nose ever since. And it's always been the sort of creative impulse that has driven what I've done and the decisions that I've made. So I was finding myself doing a lot of reading and thinking about certain ideas about environment. And that was what led me to doing the philosophy degree, because I thought, I want to just get right in here and really get under the bonnet and see how this is all working. (laughs) So I did that. And actually, I think that's really where I cut my teeth writing because I I found I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed doing the Mm. academic writing. But I still had the creative itch. And I was asked if I wanted to do a PhD in philosophy. And I said, well, that would probably mean kind of putting my creative work on a back burner for another God knows how many years. Mm -hmm. But then I thought, well, I can do a creative PhD. So that then led me to doing the creative writing. The writing had already been kind of going in the background all the time. I mean, I'd I'd always been writing as part of my creative process, part of my thinking process. Mm -hmm. I had sketchbooks that were full of notes and little bits of writing here and there. So it was always there. Mm -hmm. And that's so encouraging for people who want to be writers. I think people have this idea that it kind of drops from the gods or the muses into your head and comes straight out your fingers. And if it doesn't, there's something wrong with you. And you've got this really beautiful mix of education that is apparent in everything you do. I was, I think, particularly of this project you did in 2014, you received a Scottish Arts Council funding to make new work in response to Edinburgh's university's 
natural history collections, and you wrote a blog, and you took lots of photographs. And the final outcome is this remarkable photo essay called The Curator's Room, published at terrain.org. And I'll put the link in the transcript I provide on my website. But it's a gorgeous piece of writing. And I was searching through it for some clues to you. And in one particularly beautiful passage you mentioned, you remind us that Wordsworth famously composed his poetry while walking. And I wonder, where do you compose your work? Are you sitting still? Are you out walking? Are you looking around? You mentioned that one, and I thought, so what's the key here, Samantha, in terms of why are you telling us this? Um, in my own process, I, I don't have one particular way of, of working. I, sometimes I just take my phone and put the headphones with the headset on and do a voice recording as I'm walking. Sometimes hmm. I just go and you know go for a walk or something and then come back and just sit and write sometimes I just set a timer and give myself a regular time slot and slog away for an hour and then right okay (laughs) job done go and do the next thing so I wouldn't say I have one particular way of writing but I think I Mm -hmm. write because it slows me down I write because Mm. it makes me pay attention. And I think that's also why I draw, because both of these seem to be disciplines that slow you down and give you a focus. And my writing process is very slow. It's quite iterative. I revise and revise and revise, and I go back into a a, a text. I mean, that essay you mentioned, I think I worked on that for, I don't know, might have been on and off for a year or so. Hmm. until I kind of worked out what it was I was trying to say because I didn't quite know at the beginning, but I kind of worked it out through the writing. You know, it's like John Didion says, I, I write in order to know what I think. Um, yeah. And I think that's definitely true. I write in order to know what I feel. I write in mm-hmm. order to know what I'm looking at. Um, mm-hmm. So I think yes. that's probably the heart of it. I think that's a good heart. You, in the same essay, you, you pose the idea, you say, quote, what is writing but this task of capturing and stabilizing thought? What is a writer but a kind of curator? And I really, my heart just sort of sat down in the good seats when you wrote that. And I read that and I said, yes, a kind of curator. Do you care to expand on that, the idea of curating? Yeah. I mean, in the context of visual art, a curator is someone who is trying to tell a story or perhaps make an argument through a certain selection of artworks. And Mm -hmm. I guess writing memoir, because that's the writing that I have Mm -hmm. done mostly, is very much the same. You have to select from that huge ongoing rush of lived experience the sort of talismanic experience that will propel your argument or tell your story and that has a coherence Mm -hmm. because life's not terribly coherent (laughs) or certainly mine isn't (laughs) as it's lived Um, but we kind of we make art to make sense of that we make Mm -hmm. art to find the pattern and the meaning and the structure within that because it's there but it's not always immediately evident so yeah I think it has a lot of a lot in common with this idea of curating. Mm. I use the phrase a lot, talking to writers, but I hadn't seen it in your work before, or I hadn't seen it elsewhere in anybody's work so much, and I loved that. You end that remarkable essay with the phrase, practice systematic wonder. And 
the benefit of you doing so is all over your pages, all over the visual art that I've looked at of yours. So if you had a, a group of us sitting in front of you, which you kind of do here on the podcast, can you give us an assignment to help us practice systemic wonder? Yeah, systematic wonder, the practice of science. You know, sci- I'm not a scientist, but I have a huge interest in science and I have friends who are you know, research scientists. And yeah, there's a rigor in their process. And that's the systematic Mm -hmm. part. You ask a question Mm -hmm. and you have to then set about answering it. But it has to be driven by a sense of wonder. Otherwise, you know, what's the engine behind it? So I, I would say writing is also practicing systematic wonder, because you maybe see something that moves you, but then you don't know why. You know, why am I fascinated by this mm. thing? Why am I, why do I keep, my attention keeps coming back and back to this phenomenon. You know, it's maybe it's the natural world or, or maybe it's people around you, you know, or, or, or an experience that you've had. And yeah, the, the, the systematic part of it is the discipline, isn't it? It's the sitting down, you know, glue on seat and getting the words out and then trying to get them in the right order. I'm a great believer in this word practice as a kind of discipline, if you like. It's something that you just sit down and you do every day or whenever you have time and you maybe are not so attached to the outcomes of it at the, at the mm-hmm. outset. You just do the practice mm-hmm. and then you reap the results in due course. You know, it's, it's like having a yoga practice or a, a running practice or practicing a musical instrument, playing your scales. I think that's mm-hmm. the systematic part is the rigor and the discipline, which are kind of unfashionable words. They sound quite cheerless, but there's a real freedom, I think. <laughs> In just like, okay, it's this time I'm going to sit down and write. You know, whether I want to or not, whether Mm -hmm. I like it or not, whether I'm inspired or not, I'm just going to do it. My partner is a bit of a runner. He likes to run marathons. (laughs) I certainly don't. But um, yeah, that's one one (laughs) thing he says is the hardest thing is just uh, putting your shoes on and getting out the door for a a run. So he just makes it Mm. into a, a habit. And, you know, habit is our friend, really, when we're trying to do something like write. We form the habit, we form a good habit, you know, a, a helpful mm-hmm. habit. And that will see us through mm-hmm. a lot. That will see us through those days when we don't feel particularly inspired or where we're tired. It's just a habit. Before you know it, you're sat down and you've opened your notebook or your laptop and you're starting to put words down. Yeah, the discipline is so important. I'm a huge believer in discipline. I, I'm not a woo-woo person at all. I'm a disciplined person and I believe in the discipline and the results of your discipline of your systematic wonder is so evident to me in the clearing and it's your first book and I have to say it's breathtakingly beautiful I truly love this book I have held it to my chest while I read you know had to stop and just sort of hold it to my heart and say oh wow and when I describe this book to people and I do frequently I talk about how you see things. I say you have an artist's eye, a scientific background that includes a good working knowledge of metaphysics and a fascination with, of all things, the history of ether, all of which you apply to examine the spaces between what we can learn in them in those spaces. And and what astonishes me about this book is that the spaces you take on are, are spaces between people, between us and our possessions, our ideas, our guilt, our grief. 
And you pretty much do pretty much do this in, in, in the assignment of clearing out your childhood home after the death of your parents. So let's start with when this idea occurred to you to write the book. A lot of us have to do this. We have to go to our childhood home where our parents still are and clean it out. It's it's an astonishing place from which to write. When in the process did you say, this is what I'm going to write about? And then when was it a book, please? Well, first of all, thank you for saying such lovely things about it. It's so nice to hear a book being received so warmly by readers. And it completes that journey, I suppose, of, that was begun for me a long time ago. So, like I said, I was writing bits and pieces and, and kind of as part of my creative process. And as a visual artist for quite a long time, I'd been really fascinated by this idea of, of a gap or a space between or what's there when nothing is there. And I'd been really drawn to this idea of the ether, which is from science, in fact, from even what they would have called natural philosophy before even the word science was used. And it goes right back to Aristotle as a way of understanding how light from distant stars can reach us, what's in the spaces between things, what's there when we don't really understand what's there. It was this really kind of shape-shifting idea that lingered in science for a couple of thousand years. You know, it was still hanging around mm -hmm. in Einstein's day. And even now mm -hmm. you hear physicists talk about quintessence dark matter. I mean, quintessence is the essence is ether. So I was really so fascinated by this idea, but I didn't really quite know why. And then, as I said, I'd studied philosophy and I kept coming back to the ideas of nothingness and gaps in philosophy as well. So I was coming at it from lots of different angles. I was interested in, in Buddhist ideas about emptiness. And yeah, I kind of chewed on this idea for years. And <laughs> I read this essay uh, by the poet Mark Doty, who ex um, explains a process of writing one of his poems and he 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 wrote about metaphors and he says our metaphors know things before we do that they're a form Ooh. of intelligence that kind of reaches out into the world and fastens onto things because they are helping us to understand something or to handle something that's perhaps too delicate or too charged to hold directly and that really spoke to me and I thought gosh maybe this is yeah this is a clue perhaps so anyway off mm -hmm. I went and I was embarking on this PhD in creative writing with this very nebulous cerebral kind of idea of writing about ether and gaps and nothingness and it was going to be terribly <laughs> philosophical and very very high-minded um, mm -hmm. and then my father died <laughs> And mm. then 18 months later, my mother died and I was embarking on this lengthy process of clearing out their very, very cluttered house. It was absolutely full of stuff. They'd lived in it for 45 years. And there was a certain moment, really, when I walked into my father's room. He had been a radio and television engineer. And when he retired, he'd also been a radio amateur and he made remote control aircraft. And he had this room that was just absolutely stuffed with old radio sets and homemade 
airplane models and he had these maps on the wall that showed where radio signals could reach and frequency allocation charts and I realised that he'd been fascinated with ether as well, Mm -hmm. ether as radio, ether as the ether that we talk about and we'd never talked about it and I started to realise that Maybe it was about him and about my mother and about our relationships and those silences and gaps between us because my mother suffered from long-term mental illness. So the personal story started to kind of elbow its way in. It was too front and centre, you know, I couldn't really ignore it. So Mm -hmm. I kept finding myself writing towards the things I needed to understand at that point. So I surprised myself that I ended up writing a memoir. So there wasn't one moment when I sat down and said, right, okay, I'm going to write a book or I'm not going to write a memoir. It evolved gradually and uh, turned into the clearing. It's a wonderful permission that you suggest that sometimes is provided when we find something in our own backyard that could command our attention, but that it could be, you could create a bowl underneath it of the things you've been thinking about. And in this particular piece, your grief and guilt are braided beautifully with your science. And this seems to come naturally to you. The way some people see metaphor, as you said, the Mark Doty essay on metaphor is is so incredibly helpful. And every writer listening to this wants to feel the permission to see the world, well, the way they see it. But few Mm. give themselves that permission. And when pitching those metaphors across the dining room table to our (laughs) partners and kids, we frequently just kind of get some cold stares like, oh, there goes mom again. She's nuts or whatever. (laughs) So to whom do we want to talk uh, to this about what we see? In other words, talk to me about your support network that allowed for such illuminating thinking and writing. Where did you get your support for these ideas? Well, when I said there wasn't a moment when I sat down and realised I was going to write a book, actually, that's not entirely true. I went on a writing retreat run by the Arvon Foundation. I don't know if you've heard of them in the UK. It's like a standard sort of week-long, well, five-day-long retreat with a couple of writers as tutors. And one of them's in Ted Hughes' old house. And, you know, they're in these really nice places. But there's a very nice kind of collegiate atmosphere in them. They're not kind of all about luxury. They're about writing. And I went on one Mm -hmm. that was run by uh, one of the tutors was a writer called Jay Griffiths, who's a wonderful writer here Mm -hmm. in the UK. And uh, I'd read a lovely book of hers called Wild, which I think was published in the US as Savage Dreams. Loved Mm -hmm. the poetic intensity of her writing. And I went along with some of my little scribbly, scrappily little bits of tentative writing. And she literally sort of took me aside in a room and sat me down and said, okay, so what's your book about? And I answered. (laughs) (laughs) And it was like she'd ambushed me, you know, it was just like, poof. And out this answer came, you know, I didn't expect it myself. Mm -hmm. I said, I want to write about the ether. I want to write about the gaps between things, blah, blah, blah. And she just looked at me with her eyes shining and she said, you must write this book. So I thought, oh, Mm. okay, I suppose I better. So somehow it's odd that we need to ask permission. Um, I went, I think I Mm -hmm. waffled. I said, yeah, but I'm not a writer. I'm an artist. And she said some very wise things. She said, it's the same job. You know the job Ah. is the same. 
Um, and she was right, actually. Yeah. What was the hmm. question? I've lost track. Yeah, that's that. That no, that's it. And and I and I wonder in the industry end of it, did you get pushback when you tried to sell it? Agents, publishers, editors. Did some people say grief? Guilt, science, uh, cleaning out a parent's house, uh, what? Or did, I mean, there, you, we always want to publish with someone who gets us, obviously. But I wonder when you took it to market, was there uh, any pushback that you got for braiding together these ideas? So, yeah, you were asking about support network as well through the long mm-hmm. process of writing it because it took about six or seven years to write. And that was one of my reasons for deciding to do a PhD because here in the UK, I think it's slightly different in the States, but here in the UK, a PhD is absolutely your project. It's up to you. And I realised that I was going to need some input and maybe a bit of structure. So that was basically why I ended up doing it as part of a creative writing PhD because I would have that kind of framework and I worked with a wonderful writer called John Burnside who's known as a Mm -hmm. novelist and a poet he's a very fine poet as well and so I just had these sort of every couple of months I'd rock up and have this rather freewheeling conversation with this amazing writer who I I, you know really (laughs) admired his work and we just had these really kind of rift on ideas for an hour or two and then off I went and wrote another chapter so that was a really useful support but I was actually other than that incredibly secretive about what I was doing because it was quite personal Mm -hmm. and even my partner didn't know what I was up to so this um, Hmm. PhD was a really useful smokescreen because people would say how's your PhD going and you just go oh yeah it's really it's really you know it's really difficult and complicated you know it's a PhD you won't understand so it was a really useful kind of smokescreen to stop people asking too many questions because I just like you know give them some metaphysics and that would scare them off so that was quite useful but when it came to finding a publisher uh, I was really fortunate in in getting an agent quite quickly again through the support of another writer who had read the manuscript and loved it and said I want to introduce you to my agent and I am so indebted because it's it's hard to kind of get off the slush pile so I had an agent but yeah it went through so many publishers before it actually got a taker and what was quite mm-hmm. frustrating was every publisher had a different reason for turning it down so I couldn't see any kind of logic but I think yeah people were a little bit puzzled about how they were going to market a book that was about science and grief and art and clearing out a house and yeah it was it was I think a bit of a tough sell yeah they can be but I'm so glad you persevered and braided those all together it makes for such a rich tale and it's deeply reassuring that that there are publishers there that are not just looking for the one trick pony. Mm-hmm. I want to talk a little bit more about this eye, this eye of yours. You you live in a remarkable part of the world. Do we say you live in Orkney or on Orkney? Because it's a it's a series of islands. So how is it phrased? Yeah, you are very correct and astute because you wouldn't say you're on Orkney because it's not one island, it's a group of islands, none mm-hmm. of which is called Orkney, okay. just to confuse you. Uh, so I live in Orkney. <laughs> <laughs> and also I like to say I'm in Orkney because it's a community. 
It's it's not just a, yeah. a lump of land dropped in the North Atlantic somewhere. So yeah, I live in Orkney. No, and it's it's an extraordinary place. It's got um, it's it's north. It's, you go as far as north as you can in Scotland, and while it's not as far north as the Faroe Islands, it's safe to say it's remote. So let's hone in a little bit about what you see every day there at the near top of the world, and how that influences <laughs> what you write. I'm fascinated with. I looked at a lot of pictures of Orkney before yeah. this interview, and I thought, I think I can almost smell the sea in, in some of the things you've worked, and certainly in your visual artist art. But what about you in terms of the way you think and write? How, how is that landscape affecting your, your work? Well, it's a very dynamic landscape. It's a very dynamic environment. It's pretty windy. Um, mm-hmm. You're aware of the weather. Uh, Actually, it's really still this evening. I'm just looking out the window. It's very still, but that's unusual. But it's not remote in that it's actually, uh, it's quite populous. It's quite fertile. There's a lot of farming. It's quite green. But uh, there's very kind of uh, spectacular cliffs along the west coast. And the waves come pounding off that coast in the winter. But as a, as a result of, of that, we have a very active research and development in renewable energy. So it's also a very forward-looking mm-hmm. place, really kind of groundbreaking stuff's going on with generating electricity from the tidal currents, which are really strong here, and from wave energy and wind turbines. Mm. And then right beside all of that, you've got Scarabray, you know, like a village that's 6,000 years old. You've got standing stones of the Ring of Brodgar that are thousands of years old. So you get this really kind of long sense of time, a kind of layered sense of time. It's all here, you know, it's all just sort of right underfoot. I think just a couple of weeks ago, the front page of the paper was a local farmer had lifted a slab in in one of his fields that the plough turned up and lo and behold, found himself looking at a think a 4,000 year old skeleton. I can't remember what the age of it was, but it was just like, whoa, there you go. It's right there under your feet all the time. But I'm really finding myself really drawn towards looking at and thinking about water. I'm actually right outside my window here. There's a, a lake, a loch, freshwater loch. And as you say, the sea is a constant presence, but also water as it moves through the landscape and rain and fog and mists and the water that moves through our bodies it's um yeah it's another one of these kind of imponderable elements i suppose that you can use as a thinking tool to think about all sorts of questions about boundaries and and where do we stop and the rest of the environment begins and about surface and depth Mm. and ambiguity and yeah so water seems to be flowing through everything since I moved here. Well, I'm glad it, it does. The, uh, I, I, will, I will put a link in to the project you did, the major public artwork project at the Balfour Hospital in Kirkwall, which if ever there was water, there's, it's there. It's a 30-meter-long mural, is that right? That It's enough to make yeah. me get on the plane and come see. I have to say, it's, <laughs> uh, it's, pretty, it's pretty beautiful. When did you complete that? Uh, yeah, that was um, a commission that came up when they were building the new hospital here. It was a really big building project for, for the island. Um, so it was, was 
quite a big deal to, to get that commission. It's in the sort of hub area as you come into the hospital. There's some big areas of an internal glazing for the office spaces, for the doctor's offices and so on. And then also this long curved wall. So I proposed to make this artwork that would just unify the, the whole space. And I got the commission, I think, while I was finishing off the final edits for the clearing. And literally, mm -hmm. I I hit send <laughs> to the publisher on the 4th of January and literally had to start right away on this this uh, commission for the hospital because it was on quite a tight turnaround. But yeah, but even while I was writing, I was still keeping things going in the studio by just drawing, just going and picking up a mm -hmm. pencil and doing some drawing. So it was kind of like I'd kept the pilot light going. So when the yes. commission opportunity came along, I had a really clear idea of what I wanted to do. And I thought this is mm -hmm. a good fit for what I want to do. And for the commissioners as well, for the hospital, it fitted what they wanted to. So it all sort of dovetailed in quite neatly. But because I had been, you know, this is, we come back to habit and we come back to discipline because I had the habit of drawing. Every time, you know, I just needed a break from writing or I had half an hour to spare, I would just pick up and start drawing bang, the, you know, woof, it all opened up again because the pilot light was there and, and I was able to mm. really hit the ground running and, and do this this project, um, which was quite a gargantuan task. I think I was working mm -hmm. for 10 hours a day, seven days a week for three and a half months to finish it. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> well, we're very grateful you did and very grateful for your presence here today. Thank you, Samantha. It's wonderful to have you. The book is The Clearing, a memoir of art, family, and mental health just out from Little Brown. See more on her at samanthaclark.net. I'm Marion Roach-Smith, and you've been listening to Cordy. Cordy is produced by Overit Studios in Albany, New York. Reach them at overitstudios.com. Our producer is Adam Claremont. Our assistant is Lorna Bailey. Want more on the art and work of writing? Visit marionroach.com and take a class with me on how to write memoir. And thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to QWERTY and listen wherever you go. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a starred review. It helps others to find their way to their writing lives. Mm -hmm.